Have you had a good summer? I have had a good summer, thanks. Yeah. yeah. I just, uh, you travel a great deal, don't you? Mm-hmm. I just recommended your name to a friend in, uh, who's running the Belgian, the German Marshall Fund European, or I don't understand what he's doing now, but they have an office in Belgium. Oh. And they're doing a conference on, uh, as I understood it, on um, integrating, uh, on, on kind of the experience of Muslim youth in Germany and America, hmm. and, um, and I gave him your name, so he might be Great. calling you. Yeah. So, Mitch, do you, what do you need from us? Are we ready to go? Okay, we're ready to go. Well, I, I think I want to be c- quite wide-ranging here. And, and start out talking about you and your story and and what you're doing now and, and also get into some of the challenges and issues and big ideas that you write about and, and come up against. Sure. But I really would like to start, and I've just, you know, I've been able to get snippets of this from pieces you've written with, um, and I, I, start th- I start in this place with just about everybody I interview, whatever we're talking about, and, you know, even if they're a physicist, you know, to ta- tell me something about the religious background of your mm-hmm. early life. I grew up in, in the western suburbs of Chicago, uh, which are largely white, largely professional. Um, and I grew up in what I call a devoted Muslim family. It was a family in which Islam was uh, important and talked about. And we said, uh, Bismillah, and we prayed Thusbi, and um, uh, we said, Inshallah, you know, God willing a mm-hmm. lot. But we didn't always get to Friday prayer. The, the kind of challenges of American life in the sense of working too hard and, and crazy schedules were kind of a scattering influence on our Islam. But I knew I was a Muslim, and I was proud of that. I just didn't know how to talk about that, right. which made my experience in my high school lunch table uh, kind of interesting because my best friends in high school included a Mormon and a Jew and a Hindu and a Lutheran and a Catholic. <laughs> and it it's almost sounds like a joke. The great American experience. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And I think that it's more and more a common American experience okay. is, you know, kids have friends from different religious backgrounds. And what they don't know how to do well is talk about their own religion or mm-hmm. ask other people about their religions. We don't have this thing I call a public language of faith. I mean, I knew how to be a Muslim in Muslim spaces. I knew the private language of Islam, but I didn't know the public language of Islam. And, you know, some people would say that's a healthy sign. That means that we're all living together and accepting differences and we don't need to be speaking about them. I mean... Looking back on your high school experience, um, do you do you now feel that that was a problem that that you couldn't talk about these different faith traditions? At the time, I didn't think it was a problem. At the, when when a friend of mine, when a friend would say, I, "You know, I'm not eating today," I knew that religion hovered behind it somewhere, uh, but I didn't want to ask that my friend about that because right. I knew that they wouldn't have a good answer. And frankly, I didn't want them to ask about about why I wasn't eating. You know, when Ramadan happened, because I wouldn't have a good answer. All I knew is that Muslims don't eat during this right. month. But that's a very fragile civic fabric uh, when we don't know. When we don't know about other people's deepest identities, we live in a fragile civic fabric. Uh, 
there's a, a, an interesting study done by Ashutosh Varshney, who's a political economist at the University of Michigan, study done on India. Uh, and he asked the question, why is it that some cities in India remain relatively calm when Hindu-Muslim tensions rise and other cities explode in violence? He said that there's really one one distinguishing factor between the cities that stay calm and the cities that explode, and that is the existence of civic associations that bring people together across barriers of religious difference. Hmm. And if we don't have a way to engage right. so our it's, religious it is an engaged, uh an engaged coexistence rather than just, just a passive being together. That's exactly right. I mean, we you know we 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 have the danger of of religious segregation in this country. And um, in the, I, I ask friends, I ask people when I go speak, you know, this, if it's a Methodist group, I say there are six million Methodists in America and about six million Muslims. How many Methodists do you know, and how many Muslims do you know? Mm-hmm. And if we if we don't know that the person in the cubicle next to us, cubicle next to us is a Muslim, and how that Islam guides that person's life um, in times of challenge, in times of strife, in times of tension, that fragility uh, could be a tinderbox. Let me ask you this: Do you, looking back at high school again, um, I mean, do you think that you and your friends were more fluent in talking about other kinds of difference between you? Absolutely. Yeah. I think um, the issue of racial difference, the issue of gender difference, of ethnic difference, uh, that was a, a much more commonly talked about um, uh, phenomenon, so to speak. We had a language for it. One of the reasons is because people have been writing about it and, and pushing it in the academy and other spaces for the past you know, three decades. Yeah. But religion, as Diana X says, has been the kind of missing word in the diversity discussion. So mm-hmm. we didn't have a language for our religious difference. You have written um, that, well, I don't know if you if you've said it this way, but you've written about how Dorothy Day, the Catholic journalist and social activist, um, brought you back to Islam. So it's, it sounds like, was it after high school that you had, a, or you weren't terribly identified maybe with your Islam then, and, and what happened to your religious identity as you grew older? That, that's a... Uh, um Dorothy Day played a huge role in what I consider my re-engagement with Islam. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I knew I was a Muslim and I, I, I was, uh, I did various ritualistic Muslim things when I was in high school. Uh, when I was in college, it wasn't a salient part of my identity. What was important to me in college was being engaged in social justice work. You know, the, I went to college at the University of Illinois in Champaign, and I saw folks uh, eating their dinner out of garbage cans and, and Vietnam veterans drinking mouthwash for the alcohol. And this is not the America that I was exposed to mm-hmm. in Glen Ellen, Illinois. And I wanted a way to engage that as fully as possible. And, you know, the, the social radicals on campus would talk about the system and the social service people on campus would talk about helping people. But I never felt like there was this kind of 360-degree approach to social justice until I landed up at the Catholic Worker House in Champaign. And that's where I felt like it was this human-on-human contact of of building community inspired by the divine. Mm -hmm. And as I read more and more of Dorothy Day, uh, there is a call to all of us to join with others to serve humanity. That kind of language really resonated with me, and I spent a lot of my time in college in Catholic worker houses, really from Oakland to to Boston. It was very Christian Uh, language, though, too. It, it was it was Christian language, and 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 
it was the fact of that Christian language, both my own resonance with it, but also my slight angle to it that caused my re-engagement with Islam. Because I, as much as I, had, I loved the songs and I bowed my head uh, when, there were, when there was prayer, the cross, the blood of Christ, the resurrection, those key symbols didn't speak to me in the same way that they spoke to Christians. Right. And at some point, a Catholic worker leader put his hand on my shoulder and said, kid, you got you to gotta find a way to engage in social justice, mind, body, and soul. And so I, I began reading in other religious traditions and interestingly enough, kind of avoided Islam. And I consider this a kind of an adolescent prejudice against the familiar. You know, if you were raised in something, it's kind of necessarily less cool than yeah. than uh, than your own discovery. And of again, I, I think you're telling a story that many of us could tell. You know, about about turning away from the traditions and questioning the traditions we grew up with. Yeah, ag- yeah. absolutely. Uh, until I met my grandmother again, mm-hmm. and this is in the summer of 1998. Um, I I went to Bombay, India. Uh, the summer before I went to graduate school in England. And uh, I discovered that my grandmother had this 40-year history of housing battered and abused women in her apartment in South Bombay. And I said to my grandmother, I said, you can't do this. This is crazy. I mean, it's dangerous. And she gave me this look and she's like, do you know how many women I've helped? And do you know their stories? And she brought out all these Polaroids of these women from Hyderabad and Gujarat and 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 Tamil Nadu and all these different places from India who had come and and been served by my grandmother. And finally, at the end of all these stories, I wanted to hear my grandmother's story. Mm-hmm. I said, why do you do this? And she said, because I'm a Muslim and this is what Muslims do. And it was like, it was like, heaven cracked open and spilled onto me and I realized that there was a Dorothy Day figure in my faith in my family I was standing in an Indian Muslim Catholic worker house and <laughs> and there was this it was almost a sense of, of shame and guilt that, that I had ignored this tradition that had been in my blood and was a part of my history and I think it was at that time that, that I began my full re-engagement with Islam um, in, go ahead. Well, how, had you not known this about your grandmother, or, or had, had you just not paid attention to it? Do you, you know, I hadn't. I hadn't paid attention. I mean, my grandmother was the woman, you know, who came to uh, uh, to America for a, one month of the year and kind of poked her bony okay. finger in my chest and said, "Are you saying your prayers? And are you <laughs> are you you know giving your money to the Muslim community? And are you going to marry a Muslim girl when you grow up?" And <laughs> I was like, right. you know, I'm 12. I just want to skateboard. <laughs> okay. Um, so how old were you then? This, were you sort of in your early 20s as you were coming yeah, back Yeah, I was 20, 21, 22. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, and now I don't know, I'm trying to think where I want to go first. Um, well, let's just, I mean, it seems to me that um, it's very important to you and you have a particular sensitivity. I mean, you're still very young. How, how old are you now? 29. 29. So you're born in what? 1975. Okay. Is that still considered very young? It's very young. It's getting younger all the time, actually. I'm I'm hoping. (laughs) Um, And it seems to me that it's, um, that you've become engaged in this field of um, working, thinking hard about religion, religion in in a pluralistic culture and interfaith um, interaction 
at a young age and that you care deeply and are quite sensitive to why young people, and especially in our time, at least something that's that gets a lot of, um, that's very much in the news, is young Muslims seem to be susceptible to extremist uh, right. religious ideas. Um, talk to me about, you know, as someone who's still in their 20s, I mean, how do you think about that phenomenon? And I, I think it is something that many people in our culture are puzzled by and would like to understand better. Well, I, th- I think about the phenomenon of young people involved in religious violence uh, primarily through thinking about what young people want. And I think that Gwendolyn Brooks in this beautiful line from a poem called Boy Breaks Glass articulates it best. And she speaks um, as if she were a young person. She says, I shall create, if not a note, a whole, if not an overture, a desecration. Young people want to impact the world. They want their footprint on earth. And they're going to do it somehow. And if the only way that they get a chance to do that is by destroying things, then we shouldn't be surprised if that's the path they take. So what we have to be about is creating ways for young people to be building things, to make the Hmm. impact that is within their system in positive ways. And what is religious violence does not simply occur. Religious violence is highly organized. It is extremely strategic. So when people say to me, oh, Ibu, you know, you run this sweet little organization called the Interfaith Youth Corps and you do such nice things, you bring kids together. So, yeah, you know, there's another youth organization out there. It's called Al-Qaeda. And Al-Qaeda has been built over the past 25 years with lots of money and with lots of strategy and with lots of, of, of ideas of how you recruit young people and get them to think that this is the best way they can impact the world. And as you're saying, they, Al-Qaeda and organizations like that have very intelligently and strategically targeted young people. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you if you look at at bin Laden's writing and speaking. He specifically articulates, and we are calling the young people of Islam. Well, there's a reason for that, because he has a sense of the psychology of 16 to 24-year-olds. On the other hand, if uh, you go to a lot of, of, quote, mainstream religious communities, you look around and you're like, where are the 16 to Mm 24-year-olds? They're not here. Mm -hmm. And my... I think what we have to do is figure out how to involve them. And unfortunately, religious extremists have just been much more effective at that. And, you know, something that's interesting to me about this thesis that you that you put forward and, and that you argue very clearly that, you know, that, as you say, religious violence doesn't just happen. It is um, it is the result of a strategy. It's a it's a design. And. And in, in saying that, you're, you're also kind of countering some of the ideas that are out there about how, why religious extremism happens, that it's a response to modernity, um, that, that religious traditions and in particular monotheistic traditions are prone to violence. And you're sort of saying, no, that's, you, don't, you don't see it that way. That's right. There are, I mean, if we understand modernity as uh, people from different backgrounds living in close quarters – 
which is something that didn't happen as often perhaps 100 years ago. The southwest side of Chicago 100 years ago was largely Irish Catholic. Now you'll hear, now you'll hear the chanting of Buddhists in places. You'll, you'll uh, smell uh, Mexican food and Arab food, right? So now that place is highly diverse. Well, there are many ways that the southwest side Irish Catholics in Chicago could have responded to uh, the Arab Muslims moving in. And they didn't. You don't have to kill the new people coming in. Right. You can also befriend them. You can also welcome them. You can also cooperate with them. So we have to. When 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 a lot of religious scholars say, well, you know, religious fundamentalism or extremism is the inevitable response to to modernity. I think it's one response. And unfortunately, the people who who want to respond that way to modernity have built much stronger structures than those of us who seek to respond to the existence of diversity um, by building cooperation. Uh, we haven't built very strong structures. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, when you when you think about the work you're doing, and and I mean, and you have a you have a, a wide experience of the world. You're your family uh, comes from India. You've spent time in Europe. I mean, you grew up in this country. I mean, how do you see, where do you see examples of how those same energies and those same situations of pluralism, modernity, um, and religious uh, energies can can ter- be channeled differently? I mean, what, what is different when, when, uh, when it doesn't turn to violence? There are so many beautiful examples of interfaith cooperation. If one looks at any of the great freedom movements of the 20th century, whether it's uh, the struggle in South Africa or Hind Swaraj in the subcontinent or the civil rights struggle in the United States, the leadership of those movements was not only religious, it was interfaith in character. Hmm. So I think about... uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. meeting the Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel right. in 1963 in Chicago, mm-hmm. and them finding common ground on the Old Testament prophets, right. and then them marching together in Selma a couple years later, and Rabbi Heschel saying, "I felt like my legs were praying." <laughs> and Martin Luther King also nominated the Zen Buddhist teacher Thich Nhat Hanh for the Nobel Peace Prize. I mean, he was absolutely. We don't think of it. It's true. We don't think of Martin Luther King as an interfaith figure. And 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 perhaps the the I mean the the most influential person in King's life is of course Jesus. But perhaps the second most influential was uh, a half naked Hindu from India, mm-hmm. Mahatma Gandhi. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And King credits Gandhi with with taking the love ethic uh, of the social gospel of Christianity and making it a social reform movement. Right. And you know, Martin Luther King comes up so much. I, I I think about this often. I mean, why are there other figures like that who simply um, are not quite so famous? That's not the right word, but who we don't know as much about. Yeah, absolutely, Martin Luther I, King I think, and Gandhi. I mean, you know, these these few names we've mentioned are actually sure. Well, let me let me say one thing about King and Gandhi, which I think makes them. Um, particularly good studies for interfaith youth cooperation is how young they were when they started. Hmm. So we think about it's you know, Shahid Tanweer and Hasib Hussein uh, um, and Jermaine Lindsay were basically teenagers and early 20-somethings. And who were they? The, the kids who blew up uh, oh, right. the, London, the, the London tube. Okay. Well, in Montgomery, Alabama, when King led the bus boycott, he was 26. 
And in South Africa, Gandhi was 24 when he led the first movement against the racist pass laws. But they are far from the only examples. I mean, I think about Farid Essak, who's a great hero of Islam, of mine, who helped start the Muslim youth movement in South Africa, which played a key role in uh, in the struggle. Uh, I think about Abdul Ghaffar Khan, who is known as the Frontier Gandhi, um, who was a Pashtun from Afghanistan and said that the Quran is a document of peace and would sit with Gandhi in villages in India where there was Hindu-Muslim tension and chant alternately from the Bhagavad Gita and from the Quran, (laughs) saying as long as the word of God is heard, Mm. that's what's important. Mm. So there's, you know, and there's all these local heroes also. Tell me about some of them. Do you know some local heroes now? Who do you you think of? Yeah, I think about, I think about there's this woman that I, I met a couple years ago working in uh, one of the parts of Brooklyn that's highly religiously diverse. And I was particularly drawn to her because she had this old tattered copy of Dorothy Day's The Long Loneliness. And it was <laughs> signed by Dorothy Day. I said, how did you get this? And she said, uh, you know, my father was a close friend of Dorothy's. And when my father was sick, Dorothy would visit him in the hospital. And she would, you know, I, I would be there and Dorothy would come by and always see me reading. And so she gave me a copy of her book and signed it and said, I want you to read this. And I said, so, you know, you've been, you've been this kind of deeply faithful social justice Catholic for your whole life. And she kind of smiled at me and said, no, uh, I kind of lost my Catholicism in my early 20s until I went to Egypt and (laughs) I lived with Sufi Muslims and they taught me uh, the depths of spirituality and in a way helped me re-engage with Catholicism. And she said, that's why I make interfaith cooperation a central part of my community development work Mm -hmm. here in Brooklyn. And, you know, those that story is far more common than we think it is. We, when we meet people in other faiths that we admire and we find those things we admire in other faiths existing in our own, we just had never heard of them. Yeah, it's, it's a paradox, isn't it, of, um, in fact, this kind of engaged, uh, engaging people of other religious tradition does not end up being about proselytizing or converting it and it's often about deepening one's own faith at the same time that you learn about someone else's but i think it's an experience it sounds counterintuitive unless people have had that experience i agree and yeah. and i think what's even more interesting about the complexity of of the religious life of human beings is that we can both want to convert somebody and admire them for who they are. <laughs> and I think that yeah. that's perfectly acceptable. In yeah. fact, I think that's exactly what F. Scott Fitzgerald was talking about when he said that that a genius is somebody who can carry two seemingly contradictory ideas in their mind and not go nuts. Right. Okay. And I and I think you are living that idea and um and yet it's a little it's it's kind of contrary to an ideal that I think Americans carry around that that actually may not be serving us very well. Um, that religious people probably need to set aside their deepest convictions in order to engage with people who are different. Do um, you know what I'm talking about? I, I agree, and I, I think that that is perhaps the biggest misconception 
in in the way we think about religion in public life. And and here's an example of that. Um, I was asked to uh, to give an address on religion and social action at Berea College, which is this small Christian college in Kentucky. And and um, the hall where they have these speeches is their chapel. And this very sweet liberal faculty member uh, approached me and said, "Listen, if we, if you want, we can we can cover the cross. So if if you feel uncomfortable right. as a Muslim right. speaking right. with this cross behind you," and I said, "You know, it's that cross that brought me here. It is your Christian conviction that asked a Muslim who believes in interfaith social action to come here, mm-hmm. and." And I would not feel comfortable saying Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim if that which cross means, couldn't also, which, which means in the, name of God. in the name of God. Mm-hmm. Exactly. In the name of God, the compassionate, the merciful. And that's the beginning of Muslim prayers. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. So mm-hmm. it's it's the existence of the cross that it's, it's your being your religious you that lets me be my religious me. Mm-hmm. And... I'd love to talk to you about about this. Yeah, just a second. I'm getting messages from behind the glass. Okay. 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 Um, Ibu, I'm sorry. Mitch, um, my producer, needs to talk to Mary, the engineer there. And okay. He's trying to call her. Can she? Can she hear us speaking? Hi, I'm here. Yes. Okay. Okay. I. Don't hear Mitch. Oh, you don't is hear he Mitch. wondering about the table pounding? Yes. Is okay. that what it is? He said he heard thumping. Yes. yes. yes uh, is that Ibu talks with his passionate? hands? All right. Yes, yes. <laughs> and uh, I shall wave my hands from <laughs> now on. <laughs> We're trying to work on it. <laughs> I, I interviewed um, Yaroslav Pelikan, a great religious historian. Do you, do you know him? Anyway, no. he's from Yale. And he wore this, this jacket. Um, I don't know. What was it? His... I don't know, Yale jacket or something, but it had these, these, um, what are they called, Mitch? The buttons, metal buttons all the way up the sleeves, and it made this horrible racket, and I finally had to make him take off his jacket and sit still. So you're not as bad. Um, okay, yeah, I know what I wanted to do. All right, so so I'd like to talk about, and I think that you write interestingly about this also. It seems to me that there are some American values, and, and sometimes it's just language. It's words we get caught up in. Like, you know, we've gotten, we've, we've come to think that respecting people of other faiths, as you say, means maybe we have to cover up our cross or cover up who we mm-hmm. are. Um, uh, and, and when it comes to religious uh, dynamics, that especially is not, it's not workable. Or, you know, if, if, we, if we live by those values, then we end up making everything so superficial that, that there's not much meaning to it. Right. <laughs> I mean, and it seems to me that I think even the word interfaith, it, it becomes a, a label that doesn't express, you know, the incredible passion that you have and the... Um, the excitement of of the work you're doing with people. Do you know what I'm saying? Do you, I mean? Do you feel that frustration, or is that just me? Sure. I, <laughs> I mean, the, the there are two words in the title of my organization that that 
kind of make people, you know, almost go to sleep, which is interfaith and youth. Oh yeah, youth. That's a good thing. <laughs> good, oh, interfaith. Okay. That's a good thing. You right. Know, it's it's like it's like um, you know, it's like playing bingo, right? Oh, let's mm-hmm. play bingo, and and. Perhaps what we need to do and what I'm trying to do is infuse those words with the passion that is inherent within them, which perhaps has been lost somehow. Mm -hmm. So the way I understand the term interfaith is inter is the way we interact with people from different backgrounds. It's the reality of the high school cafeteria. It's the reality of the college campus, the reality of the corporate boardroom now. Faith is the way that we connect to our religious traditions. It's the it's the Muslim relationship with Islam, the Christian's relationship with Christianity. And our challenge is to have an understanding of our religious traditions that allows us to interact in ways that promote harmony and cooperation. Now, that sounds almost academic, almost, you know, um, something that you would find at the beginning of a textbook. Yeah, and, and idealistic, only- too, is what it sounds to a cynical modern ear. Sure, it, it can it can it can sound idealistic. Mm-hmm. the The challenge we face is there's no other alternative. There, I mean, we live in a world where hundreds of millions of religiously diverse young people are interacting all the time in intensity and frequency over the internet on college campuses in the streets and that interaction is too often tending towards suicide bombing and other types of murder and unless we change that interaction and towards the Mahatma Gandhi Abdul Ghaffar Khan the Martin Luther King Abraham Joshua Heschel mode of interaction we're going to keep on waking up to a New York Times that says 12 kids whispering the name of God killed 1,200 other people. Mm-hmm. So I, I see it as, as, frankly, an extremely stark choice that has, has been amazingly ignored over mm-hmm. the past couple of decades. I think you also have a pretty definite critique of the, way, the ways in which we've gone about thinking about interfaith work. And I, I'd like to hear more about that. I mean, what's gone wrong with the way we've been doing this so that it hasn't been nearly as effective and powerful as it should be? I, I think interfaith work has moves in stages like any other movement does. Um, and I think that different generations move it in, in the direction of, of, of their own relevance. So when I started going to interfaith conferences uh, and I saw a bunch of you know senior uh, theologians or senior pastors and rabbis saying, isn't it wonderful that we can meet for dinner like this? Right. I was kind of like, heck, I grew up with folk who were different from me. You know, what's, what's the big deal that you all can meet in the same room? You know, um, but for their generation, it, it was, was important to just right. yeah to just mm-hmm. be able to meet, mm-hmm. um, and the nature of their meeting involved a lot of conversation on theology, a lot of conversation about drafting documents, a lot of doing ceremonies, a lot of photo ops, and I was thinking to myself, this is this is not what excites me about the idea of interfaith work. What excites me is King and Heschel and Selma. Mm-hmm. That's what excites me. What excites me is Farid Esak, Ibrahim Musa, and Desmond Tutu in South Africa. <laughs> and why it, theology is certainly a powerful language of our religious traditions, but so is social action. And we need to be building a dimension of the interfaith movement that leads with 
by speaking in social action. And if we do that, we will attract young people. So and the, that's the direction we took. Right. And so I, so I, as I understand it, I mean, the work you're doing now is is engaging, is having, rather than having theological discussion as the foundation or simple social gatherings, um, you're like actually bringing young people together to do, to, to engage in projects, right? To, in social action. That's right. Okay. Well, they would build houses. Oh, okay. they, they would build houses together. They mm-hmm. would tutor children together. Uh, and they would talk about what it is in their religion that inspires that action. So the first thing they do is have a common experience of serving someone else. And you build a unique bond when, when you do that together. When you're tutoring a group of Somali Bantu refugee kids together and you're coming from a, a campus Jewish group and a campus Catholic group and a campus Muslim group, it's an amazing experience of new relationship because you think to yourself, man, I know that we Muslims tutor kids out of a faith impulse, but I didn't know you Jews did that. I didn't know you Catholics did that. So you have this opportunity to see the kind of the, kind of the best in somebody else's tradition hmm. as you are practicing the best in your own. And then you have this opportunity to sit together afterwards and actually articulate that. Say, this is what it is in Islam that inspires me to tutor this refugee kid. It is Surah 93 Hmm. that does that. And you hear this Christian kid talking about Matthew 25, and you hear this Jewish kid talking about Tikkun Olam. So the theology and the theological discussion grows out of of the social action. That's right. Although we we tend to not call it theology. I mean, and this is again perhaps uh, academic. Okay. And, well, and so, yeah. it's not so much a discussion of the nature of God. It's mm-hmm. a discussion of what it is in our tradition that inspires us to co-op, us to serve others, and to cooperate. Right, and all and the that traditions. can be a song. Yeah, and right. they're not all your traditions are not all theistic either. I suppose. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So you were saying it could be a song. It could. It's not just ideas. Not just, it can no. be, that's right. For many people, it's a hero. Hmm. You know, t- tell me, tell me about your, tell me about why your church does a Christmas dinner for people who are homeless, right? And then this kid has to reflect upon, well, wh- why, why does that happen? Well, and the kid says, you know, because Jesus was a gift to us on Christmas, we give gifts to others, mm-hmm. right? So that's a that is a powerful experience of that kid deepening into his religious traditions, impulse for serving others. So this is the way that kids deepen into their religious tradition as a result of interfaith service. Right. You know, most of the most of the times when we deal with kids and religion, we sit them down and we say, "You believe in Moses." Right. And the kid kids are gonna believe in Moses. But when you actually have to ask when you ask the kid, what is it about Moses that inspires you to be a leader? Mm-hmm. Man, that kid believes in Moses in a whole different way. This is also about people giving each other the gift of, of their questions as an outsider. Um, and those you know, so that someone from a different tradition asking an interesting question of another and then that question itself, um, uh, causing the person who's who's been asked it to to go deeper to think harder. 
I think that's exactly right. I mean, there's these huge parts of our lives that that are entirely private. There are religious lives. And I felt like when I was in high school, like I was hiding this stuff from my other friends. I didn't want them to know about Friday prayer and Islam. I didn't want them to know about Ramadan. I was some for some reason embarrassed about it almost. And and I think perhaps the the most wonderful uh, surprise that we found in doing interfaith youth work is how excited 16-year-old religious kids are about talking about their religion mm. with other kids. Mm. I, I got a phone call from a Catholic mom, and she said, I don't know what you've done to my son, but a- after he's gone to a couple of your programs, he's starting to—, to to wake up early on Sunday and getting the whole family to go to church. And I would love to tell his grandmother about this, except I'm afraid of admitting to her that we had stopped going to church for a while. (laughs) So it surprises you and it surprises their parents. Does it surprise the kids themselves that they find it so engaging? Yeah. Yeah, it does. And, And that, it makes me smile and it also makes me a little sad because we don't give kids the opportunity to be the leaders that they are and were meant to be. And so when kids do something that's that's astounding, either whether whether it's saying something profound or doing something impactful, it surprises everybody in the room. Mm-hmm. And I walk out of there going, I really shouldn't be surprised about this, right. but I am. And that perhaps says more about our culture than about the kids. Give me some faces and stories. I mean, it, just tell me about a couple of the kids you're working with now or sure well um i'll, I'll tell you this uh I, this young woman's story through her mother and we in Chicago, the Interfaith Youth Corps um, is building what we call a model interfaith youth city in Chicago. And our hope is that by building this model in a real life space, that folks in Philadelphia and Houston and Seattle and people on college campuses and in small towns can kind of see this living laboratory, be inspired by it and learn from it. Our deepest, our our most intense program in this model interfaith youth city is called uh, a youth council. And it's a group of kids from different religious backgrounds who meet weekly and do service projects and interfaith discussion. So this one young uh, Jewish girl has been a part of our youth council here since she was a sophomore in high school, and that's three years. So, um, and, and after she was part of this public presentation uh, with Muslims and, and Catholics and Protestants where they all spoke about their faiths and how they admired other faiths, her mom came up to me with tears in her eyes, and I said, you know, Tell, tell me why you're so emotional. And she said, because when my daughter was a little girl, we were so concerned about her Jewish Jewish identity, her Jewishness, that we tried to raise her entirely within a Jewish world. Jewish camp, Jewish day school, uh, you know, only Jewish friends and family. And one day we went to a restaurant and uh, the waits, the waiter who served us was a person of color who was obviously not who who didn't didn't appear to her to be you know Jewish in the way in in the Jews that she'd been around and my daughter started to cry and she felt very uncomfortable and and her mother was telling me as as I looked at my daughter I was like oh my gosh I have not helped my daughter live in the real world I don't want my daughter to have these reactions to people who are different and so they started enrolling her in you know um in a public school and in a, a, a more traditional summer camp and their big fear was by helping her daughter helping their daughter live in the diversity of modern america they were going to rob their daughter of her jewish identity and hearing their daughter on stage 
talk about how she was Jewish in a community of Muslims, Catholics, and Protestants was so emotional for this mother because she's like, we've succeeded. Hmm. We've helped our daughter be a deeply committed Jew in a plural world. Hmm. Tell me another story. Well, I'll tell you a story that helped that that helped me start the Interfaith Youth Corps. Okay. I was at a World Council of Churches conference uh, three years ago in Cyprus, and the keynote speaker was a Lebanese priest, Lebanese Catholic priest. And he began his speech by saying, I have, a, I have a position of some influence in the Middle East. I am the director of religious education for all the Catholic schools of this particular Catholic order in the Middle East. And part of what I'm doing is I'm transforming the way Islam and Judaism are taught in these schools taught not as competing religions, but as brother, as kindred religions, religions so we should cooperate he, with. So to Christian students then, teaching Christian yes, students about Judaism exactly. and Islam. Okay. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I heard him speak at this conference, and, and he said, you know where I got that idea from? Right here in this room 20 years ago at a World Council of Churches conference. I was, a, I was, a, uh, I was brought on a youth scholarship, and it's where I first heard the idea that Catholics and Jews and Muslims should be able to cooperate. And now, 20 years later, I'm the director of religious education for dozens of Catholic schools, and I'm transforming the way Judaism and Islam are taught in those schools. And that's the way that I see the work that we're doing. So we work with all these all these kids from different religious backgrounds. And one, you know, Catholic school kids sometimes grow up to be cardinals. And, uh, <laughs> and Jewish, Jewish mm-hmm. girls sometimes grow up uh, to run a Jewish federation. Mm-hmm. And the work we're doing with them is not only impacting their personal lives and their youth groups and their synagogues and their mosques, but one day it's going to impact national and international Muslim and Catholic and Protestant and Hindu and Buddhist and Jewish organizations. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the kind of trajectory we think about. That's you know the 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 kids that Al Qaeda does not convince to kill themselves end up becoming leaders in Al Qaeda. That's what happens. And the best example of this is Pope John Paul II. I mean, an interesting kind of minority stream of of, of papal scholarship is is saying that the most influential thing that the Pope did was focus on young people. Hmm. World Youth Day started in Rome 20 years ago, mm-hmm. a couple hundred thousand kids. A decade later in the Philippines, it had millions of kids. The Pope transformed the way young people think about being Catholic. Did you see that photo collage in the New York Times this year after the Catholic Youth Day? There, it was just this yes. oh, amazing pictures, whether four, six, or eight pictures of kids from all over the world and... It was so right. beautiful. They were so different and that's thrilling. Right. <laughs> you, you know, you know what's, what I find so fascinating, Krista, is that is people who don't deal with religion regularly have this, this stereotype about what, what religious kids look like. Right, what would a Catholic look like? like exactly. These pictures and so were nothing. That nose piercings yes. and yeah. purple hair. Yeah. I, we see that all the time at the Interfaith Youth Corps. Right, right. Now, I saw um, you and I were both at the mayor's prayer breakfast in Chicago last year, and there was a group of kids. Now, they were part of your organization, right? That's right. I mean, kids were saying, I think they were probably, what, 14 to 24, maybe not. They weren't all very young. Um, And they did a, um, 
they did a presentation on the stage, and it was really moving and um, and very substantive. And I'll just, you know, I'll say honestly, even I, in this line of work that I'm in, I mean, sometimes when I hear there's going to be a presentation of youth, <clears throat> right, we, this interfaith youth, um, I might think that it's that it's going to be kind of... Um, Kumbaya-ish. Yeah, kumbaya-ish. Good, thank you. And it was extremely moving and substantive and interesting and unpredictable. And and I'm thinking also that there was in that group, and it was a range of kids from different backgrounds, religious and ethnic, and I think there was also a young woman who was atheist or not religious. Is that right? It's uh, it's probably the case. Yeah. and you know, Or somebody who didn't, yeah, yeah. immediately Or religious. somebody who... I mean, I don't know that she called herself atheist. I mean, I also think that's, I mean, one of the ways people are, <laughs> I mean, in the in the spectrum of spirituality in our culture today, and I think this young people are especially open about this, there's also the, the stance of struggling with religion and not, you know, asking big questions, but not embracing the traditions. And I mean, it's, that that is something that's also... That whole spectrum, I think, is represented in your work. Is that right? Kind of. Kind of. Okay. Right. We deal mostly with kids who identify with the religious tradition. Uh, and we work with synagogues, mosques, churches, Catholic schools, Hillel's, Muslim Students Associations. We want to work. What we want to do is change the culture of how religious communities interact with each other in America and beyond. In order to do that, you have to work with religious communities. Yeah. And we're excited about that. What we find fascinating is the range of how kids within one religious community engage their tradition. And that is what we're extremely open about. And I I think the uh, one of the great religious scholars of the 20th century, Wilford Cantwell Smith, his term faith means the relationship that the believer has with the tradition. Now, there are there are are Catholics who might uh, there are some Catholics who will identify mostly with Saint Francis. There are others who will identify mostly with Saint Vincent. There are others who will identify mostly with uh, with Ignatius. And those are all Saint very Ignatius. different ways of being in the world and being exactly. religious. Mm-hmm. And that is, that is a struggle with the tradition, but it's a struggle in the best sense of the word. Mm-hmm. And it's the way that the, the believer connects, interprets, and lives that tradition. And so that's what we are open, especially open to at the Interfaith Youth Corps. And, and our hope is that kids in the process of doing interfaith work deepen into their relationship with the tradition. That doesn't mean that all their questions are answered or answered fully or satisfactorily. What it means is that there is some level of commitment and trust in their tradition of recognizing that that they can explore that tradition for the answers to those questions. You know, here again, we're we're kind of dancing around with words. Um, you know, I have to have doing this public radio program. I have to, I have to think about who I'm speaking with because all the words around this subject are loaded. You know, religion is a fine word for some people and really upsetting for others, and spirituality is works for some people and is feels fluffy to others. And I, I also find myself talking about traditions. Um, 
because I mean that is where religion can can be so meaningful in lives, and as as I think is part of your thinking, is it, it, traditions are very powerful in our world. That's something that I think I'm not sure Americans know how to think about all the time. Yeah, although I although we we are, you know how I think about a tradition. I think about. Ani DeFranco playing Woody Guthrie's Do Re Mi. <laughs> Say some more. That's that's the tradition of folk music, huh. and Woody Guthrie is one of the founders of that tradition. And when Ani DeFranco gets on stage and she says, "I'm going to play a song from my forefather," she is saying, "I know that I come from somewhere," hmm. but she doesn't play that song exactly the way Woody Guthrie played it. Right? I am inspired by my grandmother in India to do Muslim social action work. But her expression of that is in this very 1950s Indian way. It's taking people into her home. My expression of Muslim social action is founding an international nonprofit organization. Hmm. So the basic value is the same, but the expression changes. That's how I understand a tradition. The basic values in a tradition, compassion and mercy and social action and love, stay the same. But different generations give different expression to those things. Hmm. Talk to me about some of the problems you have and the challenges in doing interfaith work in early 21st century America, in our culture. You know, what goes wrong? What do you have to struggle against? I'll tell you what I, I used to struggle against before September 11th, is people saying, isn't religion dead? Right. <laughs> I, I remember a high school friend of mine wrote me an email and said, what's this with, I, what's, I'm hearing you're doing this thing called interfaith work. What happened to you, man? You ran off and joined the Flat Earth Society. <laughs> right. right. And then September 11th happened. And then the election of 2004 happened. And all of a sudden we discovered that, you know, the, the Passion of the Christ is amongst the, amongst the most popular movies a couple years ago. And all of a sudden we discovered that, that Rick Warren's The Purpose Driven Life Life is the best-selling book in the world for two years. Mm -hmm. And we wake up and realize that 80-plus percent of our country believes in God deeply, that over half regularly attends a religious service. And we say, what, what, who, who are these other people? Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things, frankly, that I find interesting about, about the media that I listen to, National Public Radio, the New York Times, is there is something about when we talk about religion, religion, there is something of the, isn't this curious <laughs> phenomenon? <laughs> and if you think of the New York Times well, uh, pictures of those yesterday? Catholic kids. Exactly. Yeah. 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 You know, there's there are the aardvarks and mm -hmm. there are the religious people. You know? <laughs> they, yeah. Watch them behave in their ecologies. <laughs> and perhaps that, that's one of my, that's a, that's a big challenge is, is now, that, now that we are as a culture over the idea that religion is dead or dying, um, there are there is an increasing voice in our culture that said it should be dead or dying. Right. That, you know, this, what is it with this Jesus, you know, why are you voting Jesus? Why, mm -hmm. why are you, why are you, why do you leave work on Friday at one o'clock to go pray? This is crazy. Mm -hmm. And, and the way that I talk to my secular friends about that is, is first of all, you would never say that about somebody's ethnic background. You would never say that about somebody's race, racial identity. You know, why do you why do you eat soul food? 
You mm. never ask that. Right. You, right. You have, you have a, a gut level respect for people's, for people's identity when it comes to ethnicity, gender, class, race. Why not religion? And Maybe the second thing. Yeah. yeah no, go ahead. Go, no, go on. Go on. And 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 the second thing is, religious people are changing our world. You can sit in a corner and and whine about it, or you can be on the bus and figure out how we can all work together to uh, to build a world where people cooperate and live together in some sort of mutual loyalty. I'll tell you something. Muslims are not going to stop being Muslim. Right. Christians are not going to stop being Christian. The question is, the challenge is, how do we promote a way of being Christian and Muslim and Jewish and Buddhist and Hindu that lives in cooperation with other people. Right. I think one reason someone might say, well, of course I'm not going to deny you your race or ethnicity, and that they might they might think religion is different because they would say religion is a choice. But, but on the other hand, I think your emphasis on tradition, which is in fact the way this finds expression in human life, um, suggests that it's it, it is something like ethnicity, but we haven't thought of it that way. I think that that's right. Mm. Um, and then the other argument, of course, that you'll hear is people saying, well, this religion should go away because just look around you, just read the newspaper. Religious people cause all the problems, right? All the worst problems are caused by religious passions. Sure. And, you know, I, I've, I've come to the point, and perhaps this is my cynicism, I say, well, you know, if, if you want to try to leap to the moon, you can try to do that too. <laughs> that's what that's that's the parallel to 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 waving your flag and saying religion should die. Right. Right. The other thing is it's you know it's frankly prejudicial. Uh-huh. It's it's Lewis Lapham in um in the May issue of Harper's wrote this this screed about uh how how America's recent intoxication with religion is ruining this country. And he said, when I was at Yale in the 1950s, the only thing we talked about was the anatomy of God's death. Hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, that is the amongst the most insulting things that you could say to 85% of your country people. Right. So that might fly in certain spaces on the Upper East Side of New York, but let me tell you something. You are going to hurt a lot of people in the vast swaths of this world if you go around saying that. Right. And your point, again, that we would not, that a, that an educated, civilized, sophisticated person would not come out with some kind of wholesale condemnation of aspects, other aspects of Americans' identities. Right. That are deeply rooted. That's good. <laughs> and I mean, I like it also that you are concerned about that because Lewis Lapham, I believe, was writing mostly about Christian, America's Christian intoxication, right? But you know, right. you're and, Muslim and, and, and you're also Right, in fact, it. particularly evangelicals, mm-hmm. right? And uh, we work with a lot of evangelicals, and I have crazy respect for evangelicals. <laughs> what do you mean by that? There's a great line in a Paul Simon song, uh, faith is an island in the, in the setting sun, proof is the bottom line for everyone. And people who can keep ideas of the transcendent in front of their face in a world dominated by the material 
are people that have earned my respect a hundred times over. Hmm. Now, I might disagree with evangelicals on a lot of things, but I am, I, I know that that AIDS in Africa would not be addressed in the same way without evangelicals' concern. I know that there would be a lot of women in Eastern Europe and Southeast Asia still in prostitution if not for the work of evangelicals. Yeah. And I look at them and I say, you know, we can work together on this. I, my Muslim values have a profound overlap with your evangelical values. And if you feel the need to pray for my soul in your church, you go right ahead. That is your right in this country. And if you feel that's an obligation of your religion, please do that. And when we're together, let's not spend all of our time trying to convert each other. Let's spend some of our time trying to help other people. Okay. Yeah, there's something you wrote. Um, I mean, when you when you talk about about finding, about understanding or um, asserting that religion is not going to, to go away, religious passions are not going to die, and therefore we have to find new ways of being religious together, um, it seems to me in what I read of you and know of your work that, you know, part of the new paradigm you're suggesting is to say, uh, yes, I'm going to be working side by side with people who would like to convert me, and that's okay. I mean, you're, you're kind of you're 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 not accepting some of the um, framework of what we've taken as um, that's exactly acceptable right. civic behavior. That's exactly right. That's the interfaith work has been constructed as if it is primarily about belief. So we're trying to change the way Christians believe about Buddhists. The way that I see that is somebody's belief is their own business. It is not my right to tell you how to think about God. It is not my right to tell you how to think about heaven. But it is my right to say we live on the same block together. We live in the same city together. We got to get this right. Can we at least wave at each other when we walk down the street? Can we coach each other's sons or daughters' little league team? Can we maybe start a block club together? There's this public square aspect to religious identity, and that's what I'm committed to mm-hmm. getting right. But, you know, I think what's a little bit different in what you're doing is you're also saying, you're also saying, I may be even, you know, privately, I might, I, that, that I might be offended and upset by that person's belief. Um, but as long as it's not being imposed on me, that can't be a stumbling block to my living with that person and working with that person. I mean, here's a sentence you wrote. Um, even, even most of those who strongly believe that anybody other than the most righteous of their religious tribe is bound for eternal hellfire do not generally find it acceptable practice to send people there by the human hand. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> I, I, I'll, t- I'll, I'll tell you a story, and then I'll tell you the, the larger dynamic that I'm very concerned about. Uh, I, I spend most of my time observing how religious people actually interact. I spend less of my time reading theology. Mm-hmm. Because I'm, I'm primarily concerned with how human beings can live together on earth, not what human beings write in books. And the Moody Bible School, which is uh, a leading uh, training ground for, 
for we should convert the Muslims type evangelicals. In Chicago, Uh, I believe. In Chicago, Mm -hmm. right down the street from my office. And uh, students, the Moody Bible students would work at the cafe down, uh, right next door. And I'd walk in and order my, my morning mocha and, you know, kind of hang out with these 21-year-old kids who were, you know, training to convert Muslims. And they'd be like, so, man, you know, you're here every day. What do you, what do, you do? And I'm like, oh, I run this interfaith organization. We bring young people from different religions together. And they're like, to spread the gospel? I'm like, well, kind of. <laughs> uh, to, yeah. to build cooperation. They're like, oh. Uh, what are you, man? And I'm like, I'm a Muslim. And they're like, oh, yeah, Muslim. Yeah. You know, been learning about Muslims. I'm like, uh-huh. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a really deeply committed Muslim. And my, my Muslimness is what, is what uh, uh, inspires me to work for cooperation. And they're like, wow. Yeah, I don't hear that much about that. That's really cool, though. You want whipped cream on your mocha? <laughs> yeah. So I know that they're being taught at Moody. Every time you come into contact with a Muslim, practice converting them, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, but in their actual everyday real life interaction, they don't do that. And that's what I'm hoping to build on. Now, if I were to walk into Moody and say, you better change your curriculum and you better change the way you believe about Muslims, right? forget about it. We're going to fight. But if I can find a way of interacting with this Moody Bible School kid in a way that that enhances the common ground between us and says, you and I can have a conversation that's not about conversion. I'm not saying that you can't try to convert me. I'm just saying, let's not only have that conversation. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing I say to Muslims and Jews when they get in the same room. You know what? The conversation you, you are most, you are, you've been taught to have is the Middle East. You're taught to come in here and start arguing about the Middle East. That conversation exists. But let's not, let's, let's not make that the only conversation we can have. Hmm. And I think by highlighting the, the other ways that religiously diverse people can interact with each other, we start to say, huh, Muslims and Christians can have complex relationships. And Krista, I'll tell you, I'll tell you who's figured this out is, is uh, conservatives. Evangelicals and Catholics work very hard right. together on pro-life issues in right. America and go their separate ways on the Iraq War. Well, now and, how come? How come? Yeah, cons- yeah, and also, I mean, I mean, I grew up in a in in a Protestant part of the country where I mean, there there was a clear conviction that Catholics were going to hell, and I mean, there there is also this real theological divide. But you're right; they're working together very practically and effectively on issues they both care about. Right. And, and uh, you know, this is, in some ways, um, the Interfaith Youth Corps' ideas of, of interfaith work stems out of American pragmatism, which mm. is, mm. let's look at the ways people actually interact and live and think and work, and let's base what we do off of that. Mm. I'll tell you the danger here. The danger is, is this extremely small group of people called religious totalitarians. Now, that's your have, phrase that you prefer right. to. What do you prefer that to? What are the words we use that you don't like? I, I prefer religious totalitarianism. Uh, well, it's, for me, it's, it's, it's the best word. And uh, you can also use extremist or radical. But totalitarianism means people who, who are committed 
to condemning or converting or killing everybody who does not share their interpretation of their religious tradition. Mm-hmm. That's what a totalitarian is. And it's dramatically different than an evangelical or than a conservative or than a traditionalist. Right. You can believe that everybody except your tribe is is not going to share heaven with you and still live in perfect peace and harmony and be an excellent neighbor. Right. <laughs> right. And once we start getting into changing other people's beliefs, I think that we're being presumptuous. I also think we're not being strategic because people aren't going to let you into their door if you say, guess what? If you give me a seat at your dining room table, I'm going to try to change the way you think about God. I'm going to meddle with the most precious thing in your life. Yeah, this is really interesting. Okay, so this makes me think about... um, attitudes that have been adopted and accepted and what's implicit in them because I do think that in the last few decades the idea of tolerance did kind of mean that you weren't supposed to believe things that you know that were that were even critical of 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 the person who was different um certainly you know that we almost that toler- being tolerant and wanting others to be tolerant meant that they were supposed to suspend ideas that might have to do with conversion um, and I'm wondering if there's something generational happening. I mean, is there, or maybe it's the fact that you're Muslim and not Christian. Um, you know, what is it that allows you to be that much more generous about other people's beliefs and still want to carve out the space where you can work with them? I think you're giving too much credit when you say generous. I think we are doing what works. Okay. The vast majority of religious believers believe that their religion is superior to other religions. Otherwise, they would not stay in their religion. If I believe Buddhism was superior to Islam, I why wouldn't I become a Buddhist? Mm-hmm. There's plenty of Buddhist temples around my house. And if we tell people that their way of connecting with God is they can't have their own feelings about that. They are not going to be interested in if, – if we say you have to check your way of thinking about God at the door mm-hmm. when you come in to, to do interfaith work with other people, they're not going to come. We have to do what works. Getting this right, getting the way religiously diverse people – Work with each other right is a matter of life and death. We have to do what works. Okay. I want to ask my producers behind the glass if they have questions of you. I'm going to be quiet for a minute while I'm listening in my headphones.
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now, when did you found um, the Interfaith Youth Corps? The idea first emerged in uh, in 1998 after I went to an interfaith conference and I was like, right. where are the young people? Yeah. So seven years ago, seven and a half years ago. So you've been doing this for seven years um, and I mean which is not a long period of time for you just you know just it's it's something that's relatively new I mean my, my I'm wondering um, and I'm not sure that you can answer this yet um, whether there's a lasting effect that you can see of this work and these experiences that people have um, as they move out of quote-unquote youth I don't know. Have you have you had many people at this point who've sort of grown up, gone on elsewhere, or is it just too well, short a time? The high school students who graduate from our program go off and they start interfaith student councils on their college campuses. Really? Yes. Mm-hmm. The the college students that we work with who intern with our organization return to their campuses and they build. Uh, bridges that each ease tension between Muslim students associations and Jewish students associations. So our work really has traveled across the country, I think, uh, and increasingly around the world. I mean, uh, we over the past few months we've had staff in Nigeria and the Middle East and in Bosnia and in Mindanao and the Philippines, working with groups there to help them build interfaith youth programs. So. Well- yeah, I wanted to ask you about that, about that international dimension and, and how the work and the experience might be different if you're working in cultures where religious expression is not as free and tolerated as it is in this country. Do you have that experience? Yes, that's a great question. Uh, and and I, this organization the methodology was built in other countries. Because I did my graduate work at Oxford, I spent a lot of time. Uh, um, it was, you know, Sri Lanka and India and Kenya and South Africa were a much simpler flight from England hmm. than they are from the States. And so I spent a lot of time in those countries working with organizations, helping them build interfaith youth programs. And one of the things I found was it might be difficult to get religious leaders together to have formal interfaith dialogue. But people generally don't have a problem with their kids coming together to do service programs. Yeah. It's kind of informal or track two diplomacy to be technical about it. And so, you know, people actually really like the Interfaith Youth Corps approach because it's less uh, it it's less risky for them in hmm. some ways. Once they can get over, once they they feel comfortable that our methodology does in fact strengthen religious identity, which is their key concern and it's an absolutely legitimate concern, once they feel fine about that, then they're they're quite happy to have us work with them. So it um the the these people that we've been working with uh, really on uh, on three other continents um our programs have traveled in those places, so you know I'll I'll, uh, I'll get a a pop up uh, um, in my email 
saying uh, the Interfaith Youth Corps has been mentioned in a newspaper in Tanzania, <laughs> right? Because mm-hmm. we we uh, we talked to a group of African journalists and religious leaders who came through Chicago on a State Department State Department funded trip, and somebody went back and started an interfaith youth program and mm-hmm. and wrote about the interfaith youth corps in a newspaper, and that that is an increasingly frequent uh, occurrence, and the the reason is because the time has now come when people have to start thinking, how do we get people from different religious backgrounds to to live together in peace? I mean, that that's a, that's a phenomenon or a dynamic all over the world. And the Interfaith Youth Corps has been thinking about this on the youth level for for seven years, and, and we're finding our model being useful in lots of places. So I just want to get this straight logistically. You, you had the idea... And then did you take this idea with you when you went to graduate school? So were you forming it from England? Exactly. So basically I would spend half my time uh, uh, writing my doctorate in England and the other half my time, much to my my Ph.D. supervisor's chagrin, running an interfaith youth project in South Africa. For example, we ran the the youth program for the Parliament of the World's Religions in 1999 in Cape Town. Um, I partnered with the Sarvodaya Shramadana movement, which is a Buddhist-based interfaith social action movement in Sri Lanka, helping them build interfaith youth programs in Sri Lankan villages. We partnered with Habitat for Humanity in a build in Hyderabad, India in January 2001. Hmm. All this time kind of building the theory and the methodology of how to do interfaith youth work. And so when I finally finished my doctorate uh, and, you know, confessed to my dad that I'm not walking the, the professorial path, that I'm going to try to build this organization, um, that's when we start looking for funding and opening an office and hiring a staff. You came back to really, Chicago at that point? That's right. Okay. That's right. And that was that was a summer of 2002. So it's really summer of 2002 when we start having our own programs mm-hmm. um, and our own, you know, that's when that's when we get business cards, so okay. to speak. <laughs> and now you have a staff of how many? We have a staff of 15, um, including uh, a handful of college interns who we basically treat as, as, as full-fledged staff. And we have worked uh, on over 50 campuses and cities across the United States. We coordinate something called the National Days of Interfaith Youth Service. Okay. And uh, it's, it you know, happens annually at Every, everywhere from Seattle to to Houston, from Harvard to the University of Illinois, has a National Days of Interfaith Youth Service site. And you know, I'm thinking, well, you know, it's twenty it, it's twenty sites now with three thousand young people. One day it'll be two hundred sites mm-hmm. with thirty thousand young people, mm-hmm. and one day it should be two thousand sites. You know, with uh, with three hundred thousand young people. Um, why shouldn't this this simple idea that on one day a community would bring together its kids from different religious backgrounds to bag food for hungry folks and build houses for homeless folks and tutor kids. And they would say today is a day where our city or campus highlights uh, its religious diversity and shows how that diversity can cooperate to serve everybody. Hmm. What has surprised you most um, in these seven years? What has come out of this, or what have you learned, or how have you grown that you did not expect? Hmm. 
I think the part of what I do that it's been so much harder than I expected it to be. Hmm. It's taken so much more time, uh, so much more commitment, so much more risk. I mean, I didn't get paid for the first five years. Hmm. Um, I I have such deep admiration for for my wife. Uh, When I met her, I hadn't finished my PhD, and I had this crazy idea of building this nonprofit organization. And She'd been an attorney for four years, and and who knows how this nonprofit organization is is going to work or not work, and whether it's going to ever pay any salaries. Um, and I've I think what I've been surprised by is maybe my own faith, and and I didn't know I had it. I guess I've discovered it along the way. Hmm. You know, before we finish, if it's okay, I I. I ha- we haven't talked about being Muslim, and I mean, you have written, you wrote a very um, moving um, op-ed piece after the London bombings, and you know, I don't really feel like we have to talk about that because I feel like the work you're doing is your response to it, and it's so clear. Uh-huh. Um, but I-, I would like to spend a few minutes, and it might just go on our website somewhere, talking to you about how you, as a young American Muslim, r- are responding to. Um, Violence in, in the world that is done in the name of Islam. Um, maybe that's just the question. You know, just talk to me about that a little bit. I take it personally, hmm. very personally. Um, I take. I take all religious violence, particularly violence committed by Muslims, upon anybody, but perhaps especially other Muslims, very personally. And and I want to wake up one day and not have that be in my newspaper. Mm. And that's the goal of this organization. Okay. Uh, there's, there's a st- perhaps, for me, one of the most profound teachings of, of Prophet Muhammad, the peace be upon him, is that... He would go to the cave of of Mount Hira every year um, to to pray and to fast and to give alms to the poor. And of course, one fateful day in the year 610, he was visited by the angel Gabriel. The angel gripped him and said, Ikra, recite. And the first words of the Quran came pouring out of the prophet's mouth. And he never went back to that cave. He lived the rest of his life in the world building Islam. And that's the only way that I can think of living is in the world, building interfaith cooperation from my Muslim inspiration. That's the way that I deal with religious violence is just waking up and saying, I'm doing something about this. And maybe all these other people who are also doing something about this will one day end this. I think that in some of what you've written about Islam and the world and violence, you, you know, you make the point that that many many Muslim leaders are very clear in condemning violence. Um, you sometimes hear pundits on American media say, "Well, where are the leaders?" And you know, you say the leaders are condemning it, but that really the the challenge is for moderate Muslims, um, the majority of Muslims, to be more vocal or. I don't know, maybe you don't, maybe even just more active as you're being. I actually think that the, that the answer to this 
the the problem is the disaffection of a younger generation of Muslims from an older generation. Yeah, say some the, more about that. Well, in, in the wake of the London bombings, I, th- the smartest thing that was said was by this early 20-something working-class kid in Leeds, and it was uh, in Leeds in, in, in northern England. Um, he said to a BBC reporter, the older generation and the younger generation don't talk the way you think they should. The older generation who came from North Africa and South Asia and the, and, uh, uh, and the Pacific East, um, their relationship to the tradition of Islam and how it translated into the West is very different from how their kids experience being both Muslim and Britain or Muslim and German or Muslim and American. And the Osama bin Ladens of the world understand that profound generational, religio-cultural gap, and they exploit it. So you've got these disaffected kids sitting in a mosque, and somebody stands up and says, why are you participating in the permissiveness of this Western society when your brothers and sisters are getting murdered on the other side of the world? And the older generation oftentimes has not figured out a way to translate Islam such that it makes sense in a positive, constructive way. So that to kind this of statement generation. is very compelling. You're saying that they, and that might be the most compelling uh, language they've heard. That's exactly right. Islam. It's the most relevant language right. they've heard about Islam to their lives. It okay. gives them a sense of power and identity. Okay. And we can provide the same thing. I mean, think about what what the Montgomery Improvement Association did for African Americans in Montgomery in 1955. You know, people say, oh, you know, religious violence is caused of poverty and oppression. Well, you know, blacks in Montgomery in 1955 were poor and oppressed, and they didn't kill other people. What did they do? They chose, they they were led on a path of constructive peace building because somebody shone the light on that path. So that became their religious identity. And that's, that's what you're doing, isn't it? You're shining a light on a different path. We're, we're trying to shine the light on it, and we're trying to walk it. <laughs> we're trying to walk it. We're figuring out there's a lot of folks ahead of us, and there's a lot of folks with us, and we're hoping that more and more join. Okay. Well, I think that's your last word. I think this is great. I really enjoyed it. Good. Um, Thank I ha- you. I have a question for you. It, the, the presentation that I heard um, at the Mayor's Prayer Breakfast uh-huh. Is there a recording of that or, or some other event like that that we might be able to use or even a videotaping? Um, I can – if uh, I don't know, but there, it's possible. Okay. Um, and I will find out. Okay. Um, Do you want to email me that request, Krista? Yes, yes. That who, would make it easier. You, but you've been um, in communication with Jody Abramson, right? Yeah. I'll ask Jody to email you that request. And, I mean, if you had a transcript of it also, I, I remember they were they were. Yeah, we would reading. have a transcript. We would definitely would have a transcript. I would love to see a transcript. And, yeah, let I mean, let's see what we've got. And because the idea would be maybe we could use some of their voices or use uh, some of their writing, some of those writings as part of the show. You know, we also have a, a spoken word CD. Oh, okay. Uh, of, of 
kids from our program who've done different spoken word That's pieces. That's great. Yeah. Why don't we send that? Send to us you? that. I'll have Jody. And we have multiple. We have multiple DVDs okay. also of our work. So if you would send us anything like that that you have that you could spare, and we could send it back to you as well. If, you sure. know, if there's something, if there's a DVD that you need us to get back to you, we 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 do that. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Well, so we'll we'll yeah. put those things in the mail, and, and there's there's multiple voices on that. Send us anything and everything that we might be able to use. You know, something we might be able to put on the web, and and um, and that would be terrific. 